Chapter 7 of Jerry McCauley, His Life and Work, by Jerry McCauley, and edited by Robert M. Offord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kristen Hand. Chapter 7, Trophies of Grace. Welcome, welcome, sinner here, hang not back through shame or fear. Doubt not, nor distrust the call, mercy is proclaimed to all. Welcome, weeping penitent, grace has made thy heart relent. Welcome, long estranged child, God in Christ is reconciled. Another remarkable incident occurred about this time. A gentleman from the West, afterwards the editor of the I Record, came to New York on some mining business. Being a drinking man, he drank to excess, spent his money, neglected his business, and at last he became so reduced he could not raise the price of a drink, or even a meal to keep body and soul together. Famished with hunger, he wandered down to the battery, where he saw a crowd around a street preacher. Anything was better than to be alone, with the craving of the rum appetite, the gnawing desires for food, and the lashings of his conscience as he thought of the cheerful home and loving, trustful wife who was expecting his return, while he was wandering here a penniless, deserted drunkard. He went toward the gathering and took his seat on one of the benches. He listened a while, but felt no interest. Finally, it seemed he could do without food no longer, and turning to a dirty tramp who sat on the bench beside him, he asked, "'Say, where can a fellow get something to eat? I'm dead broke and have had no food for several days.' The tramp turned toward him and said, Why, don't you know? Why, go up to Jerry's, of course. It's a big layout, about ten o'clock Sunday morning. All the bums here take it in, I tell you. You'll get a good bowl of soup and a chunk of bread, and say, he continued as he smacked his lips in anticipation, the soup's got meat in it, too. He had no choice now, so getting the directions from his new acquaintance, he came to the mission. I saw him as soon as he entered and picked him out as a peculiar case. He carried a cane, not worth pawning, and though he bore every mark of dissipation, a judge of human nature could see in a moment that he had seen better days. I walked up to him and received him cordially, treating him as a visitor, shook hands, spoke pleasantly, etc., as if I didn't know he was dead broke and in want. He looked at me and said, Say, I'm hungry. Won't you give me something to eat? I took him up to the corner of the table, gave him a knife and fork, the rest had to go for it with their fingers, and in half a minute the bowl was empty, and bread, meat, and all were devoured. I filled it the second time carelessly, pretending not to notice his hunger. After he had eaten sufficiently, I talked with him about his soul. I was deeply in earnest, and he felt it, and finally broke down and wept and prayed. He then told me his story. Oh, said he in tears, I'm a man that has a happy home, and a loving wife, and a dear little child. I have not written home, and they have no idea where I am. I came on here to see about some mining stock, but I fell into bad company and took to drinking, and all my money is gone, and I dare not write home now. He did not get clearly saved, though he made some effort in that direction. He left off drinking, and telegraphing home, his wife sent him a hundred dollars to return to Michigan with. I bade him goodbye and shook hands with him as he left to take the train, but alas for him, he concluded to take one drink, thinking it no harm if used in moderation, and the first, as usual, demanded a second, and he remained in the city, and his waiting wife and child were disappointed in their expectation of father's return. 
He became beastly drunk and, after a short spree, found himself penniless and friendless again. In despair, he went and enlisted in the Navy, thinking in this way to bury himself from the eyes and search of all his friends, and at the same time be placed where he could not get hold of the cause of all his trouble, the cursed rum. His wife waited patiently for him, but failing to see or hear anything of him, she could stand the suspense no longer and came to New York to look for him. She searched in every direction, but failed to find him, and then, remembering that his address had been 316 Water Street, she almost gave up all hope, for on inquiring she heard that Water Street was the lowest, most wicked street in the whole city. Almost broken-hearted, she came down to the mission, and supposing from what she had heard that it was a bad house, she trembled to come in and make any inquiries. She decided, after waiting as long as she dared, to take a look in at the windows anyway, and shading her eyes with her hands, she peered in through the glass and was struck to see right before her eyes two mottos, Have Faith in God and Stand Up for Jesus on the Wall. Surely, she thought, this can't be a bad house, and she finally mustered up courage enough to come inside and, not seeing her husband, to inquire of the janitor, Does Mr. M. live here? No, ma'am, replied the person questioned. He did stop here, but has gone home to his family out west. When did he go? she asked fearfully. The man answered, and she knew from the date mentioned that he would have reached home weeks before she left there if nothing had happened, and with a stifled moan, she sank faint-like on a seat. The truth now burst upon her mind that he was again on one of those fearful sprees. No one could tell her where, in the city or in some railroad town along the route from here to her home. No one could tell her, whether in prison or out, whether dead or alive, who could know. She thought of this, and then of her deserted home and little one so many miles away, and heartbroken, hopeless, and worn out, she burst into tears. As soon as she could control herself sufficiently, she told him who she was, and then we came in and did what we could to comfort her. She began a diligent search for her poor, drink-enslaved husband, but for a long time it was all in vain. She employed the best detectives she could get. In the meantime, she knelt, burdened and sin-sick, at the feet of Jesus and was gloriously saved. Just think of it, coming 1,500 miles to get converted, she exclaimed. Surely God moves in a mysterious way. She continued the search without getting any track of her husband, until, becoming completely discouraged in all human efforts, she took it all to God in prayer and left it with him. She was about to start from home when Mr. M. was discovered in the Navy Yard. Steps were immediately taken to get his release, and they were surprised to find so little opposition from those who knew him there, but we soon learned that it was because his melancholy and despondent state of mind unfitted him entirely for any service, and not only affected him, but his comrades also, to such a degree, they too were made homesick. He became a nuisance, and they were actually glad to get rid of him with his blues. The devoted wife went after her repentant husband, and as soon as they could get to the city, they came direct to the mission and bowed together before God. Such a sight was scarcely ever seen on earth, and as the poor fellow, amid the sobs and prayers of his wife and the rest of us, gave his heart to Christ, we felt assured there was joy in the presence of the angels of God. He returned home with his now happy companion, and we soon heard that his business had proved a success and was bringing him in a great deal of money. His prosperity proved too much for him, however, and he fell from his Christian profession. He remained in a backslidden condition but a short time, and returned to the Lord again, was fully recovered, and remained so to the hour of his death when he passed over in the full triumphs of faith. 
His happy death was an evidence of God's wonderful power to rescue the poor drunkard from the grip of sin and clean him up for heaven. Among the many marked and memorable trophies of grace was a man formerly known as Rowdy Brown, the name perhaps sufficiently indicating the character of the individual. But so far from marveling that such a man should be saved, we remember that grace saves the lost. Our divine Redeemer only vindicates his name as such and illustrates the nature of his mission on earth when he saves those lowest sunken in the degradation of sin. Rowdy Brown's story is thus told by Jerry. About this time there occurred one of the most remarkable events of our history. There was a certain man called Rowdy Brown, a great, powerfully built, courageous fellow who was a terror to the fourth ward. He had been a mate on the Liverpool packets and was a savage brute. He hated religion and everything belonging to it. Once he happened to see a man sitting on the forecastle reading his Bible, and without a word or sign of provocation, Brown drew back his heavy boot and kicked the poor fellow in the mouth, knocking his teeth out and disfiguring him cruelly. He went to California once, and while there, it was reported, killed several men. We always receive such rumors carefully, knowing how things grow and are exaggerated by traveling from one to another. But there was probably some truth in the stories, for when questioned by me, he did not deny them, and in fact acknowledged that there was something in it by explaining to me how some of the cases occurred. He seemed utterly fearless of consequences to himself, as he proved by standing one day cursing a man to his face who stood with a revolver in each of his hands and fired both their contents into his body. That's the kind of man Rowdy Brown was. He was stopping at Mr. Rowdy's new sailor's home when he was told that one of his sailor chums was converted at the mission. He was mad when he heard of it and swore a big oath, adding, I will take a bottle of whiskey down there, and when that feller gets up to talk, I'll take him by the upper jaw in one hand and the lower jaw in the other, tear his mouth open, and pour whiskey down him, or break his back in the attempt. And he meant it, and was capable of doing it. I did not know of his threat or of his coming, or I should have been on the watch for him. He came armed with a black bottle and waited for his old companion to testify in order to carry out his plan. While waiting, he listened, and listening, became interested, until all of a sudden he felt a strange feeling come over him, and he began to tremble. He fought it off with all his natural obstinacy, but it was no use. It continued to grow stronger, and when his friend arose to testify, this human lion was as tame as a lamb. When the testimonies were ended and sinners invited to come forward, Brown stood up and called out, Oh, pray for me. Everything was in a state of quiet but intense excitement in a moment, for many present knew his desperate character. We gathered around him and how he cried for mercy. It was awful to hear that man groan and beg. His strong body was racked with the anguish of his soul. He continued seeking in this manner until the meeting closed, but apparently with but little encouragement. On the second night, after getting into his bed, he was praying earnestly when suddenly the light broke into his heart and he knew the work was done. He jumped out of bed and soon aroused his mate who slept with him with his shouts of praise to God for his pardoning mercy. He became a diligent worker and sometimes in his earnestness would go out on the street, pick up a poor sailor, and almost haul him into the mission. When the invitation was given to those anxious to be saved to rise for prayers, he would put his arm under theirs and fairly hoist them up. Melted by the burning, loving prayers, many a man would weep and yield himself to be saved. Brown was liberal with his means, and often, on his return from a voyage, he would give us 15 or $20 at a time to help on the work. How he lived his religion aboard ship and among his associates can best be told by relating the following incidents. 
he shipped on one occasion after his conversion aboard the West India brig Nelly. The captain was ashore one day while at Matanzas and met an old acquaintance, a captain also whom Brown had formerly known and in fact had beaten unmercifully a few years before. After a few minutes' conversation, the captain of the Nelly remarked, Captain, do you know who is converted? No, I don't. Rowdy Brown. What? exclaimed the other, looking at his friend as if he thought him crazy. Rowdy Brown. And then adding slowly after a moment's silence, I don't believe it. Well, he is all the same and is aboard my brig now. I can't believe it, continued the doubter. Do you know he gave me a most unmerciful thrashing once, besides cutting away my brig another time? He was a devil. He sant be converted. Yes, sir, he is, insisted the first, and he is going to have a prayer meeting on board tonight. Come in attendant, won't you? The other made no reply, but seemed completely bewildered by the astonishing news he had just heard, and they parted. Rowdy Brown had fixed up the deck of the Nelly and had a great canvas stretched for an awning with a sign painted bearing in large letters, Jerry McCauley's prayer meeting here this afternoon at three o'clock. He would run the boats backward and forward and bring off loads of sailors to the meeting. A revival broke out and spread among the crews of the different vessels. Gentlemen and ladies also from the shore who were from the United States but were living there came aboard and became deeply interested in the meetings. One day, Rowdy Brown went ashore and, meeting a sailor he knew slightly, asked him to come to a meeting. The man showed a bitter, hateful spirit and replied with a sneer, No, I won't. Do come, oh do, said Brown earnestly, and yielding to a sudden impulse, before the man could reply, he fell on his knees and with eyes filled with tears begged him to come to Christ. The man looked at him for a minute, but hardening his heart against those strange pleadings, growled, no, I won't go. I've been to Macaulay's in New York, and he couldn't convert me, and you can't either. Brown declared on meeting some of his Christian helpers directly afterwards that as soon as that man said those words, all interest for him left, and he had a strange feeling as if cold water had struck him, and arose from his knees wondering what it meant. The next day, the man who so bitterly refused the offers of mercy was working on a scaffold over the side of his vessel, when suddenly he was missed by someone who wanted him. The scaffold was empty, and though the vessel was searched, he could not be found. Shortly afterwards, his body was discovered through the clear water, lying face downward with his mouth in the sand at the bottom. He was fished up, and a black bottle, partly filled with liquor, was found in his pocket. He probably became drunk and fell off the scaffold into the water. It was a strange affair, and so affected his shipmates, who seemed to think it was the voice of God in a fearful providence, that they became serious, and the captain of the vessel, with his entire crew, were brought to the Savior. From the last account we received from Brown, he was doing well, had secured some property in Canada, and was living a consistent Christian life. Later on, we heard of his death and had every reason to believe he died in the faith. End of chapter 7